New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The late Tony Schwartz created commercials for more than 400 corporations, five presidential campaigns, and countless social causes. Hailed as a guru of the newly emerging electronic media by Marshall McLuhan, he taught media studies at New York University, Harvard, Columbia, and Fordham. In 2007, the Library of Congress acquired Schwartz's entire body of work It took three large truckloads. Bill Moyers has said of him, he was a genius in his understanding of the communications revolution of the 20th century. And Moyers further added that his interview with Tony Schwartz was one of his favorites and one of the most important in his long career in broadcast journalism. Tony Schwartz came to understand at the most microscopic level how we all rely on media to communicate. We all live in a media space, but few of us can see it. With his profoundly penetrating view, Schwartz helps us to see how our modern media environment works on us and in us. Today we'll be visiting with Tony Schwartz's surviving son, jazz musician Anton Schwartz, as we explore the legacy of his father. Our conversation will center around the second edition of the seminal book on media, The Responsive Chord, How Media Manipulates You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think, with our guest, Anton Schwartz. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Anton, welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here, Justine. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's just go back. Let's see, your father passed on in what, 2008? 2008. 2008. And uh, let's, let's go back and help our listeners know a little bit of his background, his early background. It was so fascinating. We're, we're talking about the 1940s, and he is walking around New York City with a recording device that he's made. It was before there were any portable recording devices, and he made one. And talk about what he was doing as he was walking around. Yeah, he was just fascinated with sound and with music and with all kinds of uh, sounds that many people would consider just noise, you know, the sounds of the city. Um, He was interested in brilliant things that people had to say as well as just everyday uh, things that they would, they would say. He was interested in nursery 
rhymes and jump rope songs and in he made an album a bunch of albums about uh that that contained conversations with people around the city one of conversations with taxi cab drivers and others with like that would focus on um the sounds of the Puerto Rican immigration to New York, um, the sounds of children, and so on. It was his obsession. As a result, he would hear things in a way that, uh, at the same time, in, in the way that everyone would hear them, because he was listening to the everyday things of life. You know, he wasn't seeking the most incredible garbage truck sound. He would, he, you know, he would record these things in their context, and but at the same time present them in a way that people could hear them with new ears to to hear them. So yes, like you say, he he bought a, a tape recorder and built it into a briefcase. Uh, he built he he made a, a battery for the electronics of it and built a flywheel mechanism to operate the mechanics of it. And he uh, he took the view meter that shows you the level of the sound and and brought it up to the outside where he cut a hole in the suitcase and then he would feed the microphone cord uh through his his jacket uh and his shirt so that he could hold on to the recorder with one hand and have the microphone in his other hand and he would often have it sort of hidden under his sleeve so he could just sort of point his hand at someone and they knew they were being recorded if they were speaking but they wouldn't be so aware of the process which at that point was so alien, you know. These days, everyone's out there with their cell phone, you know, video recording and stuff. But back then, you know, people people didn't do that. There, there, it didn't even exist the technology. And then uh, those he made those recordings got made into many albums by Folkway Music or Records, Folkway Records, right? Yeah, exactly. There was about a, a dozen of them, right? Right. Different subjects. Fascinating, fascinating. And then at some point. He got into um, advertising. So, what what was the segue of of that? How the, did that happen? The segue for him? was interesting. He had a reputation for recording all kinds of things, among them children. He had a real reputation for recording children, and he uh, he had a radio show, a, a weekly program on WNYC. He used to do nightclub acts and so on. So, he, uh, in which he would play recordings and tell stories. Uh, and so word kind of got around, and Johnson and Johnson approached him about doing advertisements, which he had never done, advertisements specifically for Johnson's baby powder. And they were interested in using children the way he had used children. So he thought that was an interesting problem. To and, and at that point, most if the, if children were being recorded, they would use. Substitute a woman's voice in, imitating children. Exactly. He was he was the first person to ever make ads using real children. Until then, you would have specially devoted female actresses to voiceover people to who did their career as children. You know, portraying children. Right. Right. So. Um, and I, I think we, we need to. So this starts him in all of this, and one of the most famous. He has many famous ads, but one of the most famous we'll have to say something about is we call it the Daisy ad. And it's interesting to me, and I'll have you describe it in a moment, but it's interesting to me that it only aired one time. That was it. 
but the impact of that ad just continues to reverberate this day. So describe that particular ad. The ad, uh, it shows a little girl, uh, and she's in a field, and it's a very pastoral scene, and she has a daisy in front of her. And it's black and white, It is black and white, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, This was 1964 for the Johnson campaign. Um, And we hear her picking the petals off the daisy and, and counting and doing it in a somewhat haphazard way, counting up, you know, one, two, three, four. And as she finally gets to approach 10, um, two things happen. First of all, the camera pans quickly, or I should say zooms into her pupil. It, it, it zooms into her face and then into her pupil, and black eventually covers the screen. And simultaneous to that, we hear an ominous countdown voice, 10, 9, Eight, seven, and when it gets down past one, uh, we see a nuclear explosion. Um, and then the only words that are pronounced are that of President Johnson, um, actually quoting the poet W. H. Auden um, in a message about how important it is to uh, to love each other, or we will go into the darkness. It's uh, it's a, an extremely positive message you know, in the context of the threat of nuclear war. Um, and it, it, it's an unusual thing because it, it, it's hailed as the, the grandfather of all negative advertising, and yet it, it has neither of the essential qualities of negative ads, which are that, you know, it's, it, it's all about accusing the, uh, mentioning the, the opponent and accusing them of things and, you know, carrying a negative message. He he, to, to his dying day, you know, he fought that term uh, negative ad because the message is entirely positive and, you know, we must love each so other. So this, this brings to mind really the basis of all of his work. And the basis of his work is that he understood that any kind of message like this does not stand alone as content like uh, directed at us, but it's like the the viewer is bringing something to it. This is where the responsive chord comes, so the responsive uh, resonance. Tell us about this. You've totally got it. I mean, as we we all grow up reading textbooks, we grow up being taught things where the teacher says something and then we're responsible for remembering it. We grow up reading books where our, our notion of what it means to convey a message is that someone knows something and then they transmit the message to someone else and then now the other person knows something. And it's a, it's a way of thinking about communication that was very appropriate with books because when you wrote a book, you wouldn't know who was going to read it. You would try to make it as you know factual and gen- of course, if it's nonfiction, uh, as factual and general as you could. And then the recipient would have all this time to ponder it over and figure out what is the information that's contained in this, and you know how do I learn? But it's very different uh, with modern media, and just like you say. Uh, it all happens so quickly that we don't have this long time of pondering and parsing and trying to understand the knowledge. It, we react very immediately 
to the messages that we get in over TV, now over the internet. Um, and it's often at a, at a very subconscious level. And so in this case, you know, the, the opponent uh, was never mentioned, right? This was an ad. It was an ad for President Johnson against Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater's name was never mentioned in the ad. And if you played it to someone today who didn't know about the campaign and mentioned Barry Goldwater, they, they would ask, what, what does he have to do with the whole thing? But for the listener at that time, they knew that Barry Goldwater had, uh, had talked about using tactical nuclear weapons for deforestation in Vietnam, that he had joked about, uh, you know, spoken lightly of, of using nuclear weapons. That was very much in the public mind, in the zeitgeist. And so for the 1964 listener to see this ad that was just talking about the importance of, of peace and anti-nuclear sentiment, uh, they thought, wow, you know, this is really important. Right. Do I want Barry Goldwater's finger on the trigger? I'm here with Anton Schwartz, and he is the son of Tony Schwartz. And there, there's a new reissuing, a second edition of Tony Schwartz's book, The Responsive Chord, How Media Manipulates You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think. And if you want to know more about the work of Anton Schwartz, you can go to his website, antonjazz.com. Uh, Anton is a jazz musician uh, by trade and by uh, avocation and vocation, I'm assuming. And if you want to know more about his father's work, go to TonySchwartz.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening. Oh, wait. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Anton Swartz, and he's the uh, son of the media genius and philosopher of the new communications environment, uh, Tony Schwartz, who was the author of The Responsive Chord, How Media Manipulates You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think. And uh, there's a new edition of this book that's recently out. Anton, I would like to ask you... Uh, to go back to the idea of the new new communications environment there there used to be when it was print or let's say before telephones it took time and space mm -hmm. that went to communicate 
But now everything, even more so now, it's instantaneous. It happens like immediately. And I know that your father really talked about how that Daisy commercial that he did, we, some people would say, oh, that was very manipulative. And he himself would never describe it as that. He would say, no, it's participatory. He even liked to use the word particulation. Particulation. What did he mean by that? Where he meant that, uh, you know, it, it isn't a sort of manipulation, but what it is is the, it, the, the manipulation is the process of the message interacting with the listener. And even more so, the, the listener uh, is an active participant in you know, the creation of, of the message by how they respond to it, by what, you know, assumptions and emotions and knowledge they bring to the table. So, you know, it's, it's manipulation of a, of a sort in that you're reacting, um, you're, you're putting a message out there that reacts with the listener's uh, feelings and understanding and knowledge uh, but the, the listener, listener is of an active participant in this process. They're the ones that bring the meaning to it. Yes, exactly. I mean, he, he, he's not feeding the meaning to to them, right? And but it seems as if they, as if it's happening that way. But actually, as you're saying that, that there's something that's coming forward from the viewer listener, uh, right? And the listener is is an essential element in the creation of the meaning of. The ad or the message or whatever the form of in communication his particular is. ads. I mean, I know I I kind of I I watch ads just for their cultural meaning, so to speak, to watch them to just see. You know, I mostly I I fast forward through them. I DVR everything. <laughs> you know, so I I I have the the privilege of fast forwarding. But I might see an image or something, and I say, okay, I'm going to watch this because I think that there's some cultural. Uh, information that's happening through advertising. Mm -hmm. And some of them, Anton, I, I look at it and I just shake my head. I say, how stupid do they think we are? You know, they're just silly and stupid. And I don't, I don't understand why they even put them on. I, maybe they work uh, in some way. I don't know. But then there are those that come on that really... Get me. All right, I'll give you an example of one. I'll give you an example of two. Terrific. One, one that gets me uh, that I guess I, it elicits my meaning, and these are the Subaru ads. And they, they, this is for a car, and they elicit about family, protection, the longevity of the car that it lasts through a whole generation and and you know dogs grow up and and pass on and kids go to college and it's just I love the stories of them and I remember they're mm -hmm. Subarus and I have a very positive sort of feeling about that. So that's that's a kind of ad that gives that pulls meaning from me. It might not from for other people. Then there's another ad that I see, and I'd like to ask you about this one because I don't quite understand it. It's very provocative. It's visually riveting. And this is the Lincoln ads with uh, Matthew McConaughey. And it just he's so good. They just every little nuance of his face, kind of a smirk or a kind of self-satisfaction or whatever it is that he's conveying. 
is great, and the visuals are extraordinary, his driving, his Lincoln. But it doesn't elicit anything out of me other than just fascination to to look at him mm-hmm. and to look at the, the visuals of the ad. It doesn't do anything emotionally for me. So do you have any comment about these two? Yeah, well, I, I, I must say I've seen ads like the Subaru ad for sure. I, I don't think I've seen the actual, the Matthew McConaughey uh, ad. I, the, the only time I actually see television is when I'm at the gym <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because I, I, I don't watch it uh, at home. Um, but it's clear that the Subaru ad has tapped into some very deep feelings of yours and uh, of, we can assume, of many, many other people. Uh, you know, probably not going to hit to the core of what's making a young millennial uh, seek a car, right? You know, there's probably other demographics where the relevant uh, um, features of a car would be um, the social perception, speed, adventurousness, right? Quite the opposite. You know, even something that, you know, you can you can just burn through and move on to the next great thing rather than holding on to for and passing down to your children. Uh, I would guess that, you know, the advertisers have done a good job of targeting, you know, the shows that you like to mm-hmm. watch. And uh, as far as the other ad, you know, that's the thing is that it may well strike a, a chord with other other viewers. Right. And, and I don't know in particular what that would be. And, you know, it's yeah. it's one of these things where, if you're not in the target audience, you may be left scratching your head. Of course, there's also the possibility that it's just a bad ad <laughs> right. that that is, you know, putting that is a beautifully made thing that just doesn't reach anyone. My dad made very, very inexpensive, clean, simple, inexpensive ads that would convey the message, and he'd often get the job done more successfully than you know agencies that had. A hundred times the budget. He did. That reminds me of an ad that he did. Um, it was like for tobacco to quit smoking. Uh, the, I think the American Cancer Society. Yeah, it was uh, the very first anti-smoking ad on television. Describe that ad. Yeah, the ad is all it is is two children playing. This I can't remember the year, uh, but it's certainly the '60s, if if not the late '50s. It, I, it must have been in the '60s. Um, and it was two children just going through their parents' bedroom, going through their closet, pulling out clothes, playing and saying, you know, oh, do I look like mama now? And, and the girl, it's a boy and a girl, and the, the girl is putting on lipstick and dressing up in a huge dress that's way over her size, but to look like mom. And the little kid has his dad's jacket on. And the most of it, there's no music, there's no voiceover, except for the kids occasionally saying something. And then at the end... Um, it's a voiceover, and I wish I could remember the precise words, but it's a voiceover saying, children love to imitate their parents. Do you smoke? Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's not telling, my dad used to say, don't should on me, right? Yes. You know, you should do this, you should do this. And by that he meant, you know, in, in, if you're trying to convey a message, don't tell me what to do. Make me feel what needs to be done. Make, make me come to my own conclusion and if I, if I do that, you know, in this participation between what you're telling me and what I already feel or what you're showing me and what I already feel, 
if I if you evoke the response and the response that he wanted in this case is, yeah, wow, I better not smoke because I don't want my children to smoke and they're going to have me as their model. And it was very effective. I mean, it changed the tobacco in- industry in some ways. They, they voluntarily uh, stopped advertising uh, yeah. as a result because they could see the you know, the writing on the walls. And this is just, again, he was such a master uh, in in doing some of this stuff, just way out ahead of the curve. I've read that even the Obama administration, they all, the people that worked on the campaign when he was running for president, that they all had had their people read the response of cord. You know, they that was like mandatory reading. I have heard that through a couple of yeah. s- sources through the grapevine. I haven't actually been able to confirm that. What I do know is that uh, the media person for Joe Biden was a, a great disciple of my dad's, mm-hmm. a man named Joe Slade White. And, uh, and Carl Rove actually is on the record saying that my Dad's book is one of the most important. Well, right. So, I mean, it, from the whole spectrum, political spectrum, people can can tap into it. And I know that there was something else that your father did, and that was when people would do, when advertising agencies would have focus groups, and they would say, okay, how are you going to react to this ad? And they would they would ask questions that would talk about the content and how someone would remember what the content was. Your father went at it a very different way. He never really did that. Do you recall how he did yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't interested in, in many of the metrics that were popular in the advertising world at the time. You know, um, you know how well can the audience uh, remember the name? How well can they remember the slogan? You know, was the slogan this or this or this? Um, he was interested much more in what he would call pre-search rather than research after the fact. He would do spend the money for research before the ad to try to find out what opinions the audience, the, the target audience had already, how they already thought about things, what their associations were, so that he could tap into that to, to get the message across properly. Because you can't have a proper participatory uh, interaction with the viewer that has a predictable outcome unless you really understand certain things about the viewer. I was also struck by the idea that he would have open-ended questions, so to speak, rather than than uh, check this box and they're already filled out the, the, the answer and you check the one that's most appropriate for you. But it would be a question about... How did you feel about this? And let them come up with whatever uh, information they had in their own words, and then he would categorize those in different categories. Exactly, exactly. To to try to get a really broad sense of um, of aspects of the the listener, the viewers. Um, knowledge and emotions and what they were bringing to the table that isn't neatly categorizable. It just occurs to me in this most recent election, you know, the polls were just weird. Uh, there were some that said, oh, this that Trump is going to win and some that said Clinton is going to win. And they were just, they were just so miles apart. And I'm just wondering if that was part of it, that, that these some of the poll takers just weren't really eliciting, eliciting the true pulse of what was going on. Uh, it, 
Yeah, it's true. My my dad was very aware of certain things. He would make sure if he were doing a political ad and if there were a photo of a, of a ballot booth or, you know, um, something like that, a depiction of the voting process, he would make sure to have the names listed in exactly the same order that they were going to be on the ballot. He would make sure that they would be in the same font so that it would be very predictive of future Excellent, behavior. excellent. I'm here with Anton Schwartz, and he is the son of Tony Schwartz, who is the author of The Responsive Chord. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Anton Schwartz, and he's the son of the now uh, deceased Tony Schwartz, who was a media genius, a philosopher of the new communication environment, and the author of the now second edition of The Responsive Chord. And uh, Anton, um, we've been talking a little bit about politics, and, and your father did a lot of ad campaigns for different politicians. And um, in this in this day and time, it, it occurs to me, he, I know that he, he used some of his expertise for, as, an, as ads for politicians, but he was also aware of the unpaid kind of, they're not ads, but the, the different ways that, that they're presented in the media. And... Uh, We've just come through, this is now 2017, we've just come through an election and uh, Donald Trump is now president. And it seems to me that he is a master at getting that free advertisement, so to speak. I mean, he's a master manipulator of, of the media. They've just kind of fallen right in line with him and just given him all sorts of information, at least here we are in April of 2017. I don't know the future of it, but here we are. So do you have anything to say about that and how how that is unfolding? Yeah, well, Trump certainly has used the free media to incredible effect. Um, the The media landscape was, was very different uh, at the time that my father wrote the book. What's so strange about it is that the book is almost more appropriate today than it was when it was written. Um, because so much of what it talks about it can be applied very specifically to social media and to viral media. You know, Trump gained uh, so much of his political traction over Twitter, over the social media by, you know, creating these pithy little things that, you know, whether or not they were factually true, whether or not, you know, they were politically correct, they really just, he he reached people uh, at a gut level that in a way that they hadn't been used to being reached by politicians. And that was a very powerful 
phenomenon. My dad um, was actually not a great believer in unpaid media at the time. Uh, and that's just because the unpaid media at the time meant things like public service announcements, which, you know, would get run at late at night and stuff and was very hard to control and did not get nearly the number of engaged eyeballs that the free media of today, you know, the Facebooks, the, the Instagram, the Twitters, uh, the way those things reach out to people as parts of their social lives. So he would actually use uh, paid media as an entry to to really viral response. You know, you mentioned before that uh, the Daisy ad was only run once, right? That was paid media. It was run uh, on on broadcast television. But the message was so powerful that people were talking about it, that they were calling each other about it, that uh, as a result, you know, word spread and, and the, the ad itself became a news story. So the ad was played over and over and over and over on television and spread virally, you know, even, and this is in 1964, right? And in the same way, he would, he would make an ad and he would say at the end of it sometimes, if you're interested in more information about this, call blah, blah, blah. And he would have several phone lines at our home, the home that I grew up in, where his office was, uh, that were just silently playing outgoing messages all day and night. And people would call the number and, you know, to follow up on a 30-second ad or a 60-second ad, and they'd hear a three- or four-minute message. Uh, and then they'd give the phone number to someone else. So, you know, before the, the infrastructure existed for viral media, he was making it happen in these unusual ways. And it was all possible because he would tap into these deep feelings that, that really, and messages that resonated with the people who were hearing him. It's like, I haven't heard that. Yeah, you ought to hear that. And Trump did manage to do very much the same thing. There was something that he said um, that he talked about, which is very provocative. He was talking about um, these feedback technologies, let's say, of this kind of way where you can Twitter, retwitter, and do all that viral stuff, that these... Um, he said that they were about to embalm or bury network television and Hollywood film distribution. And he, he said it was like a marriage between the undertaker and the corpse. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And because they're marrying these old environments for investment purposes, um, the, the behind the scene, what they're doing. And I'm thinking of, of let's say, uh, what's in, in the news these days is something called bots. Mm -hmm. And where when you have viral media is also the shadow side of it is that you get all these different people making something viral, but they're not real people that are really toned into the message. Mm -hmm. Can, do you have something to say about that? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, what you're giving really is the argument for why it's so important to understand uh, the, the modern, you know, electronic digital communication process. Because people are so susceptible to bots and to fake news because they don't understand the mechanisms by which they work. You know, if, if you're used to, well, take a, here's an example. Um, you know, there was a time when 
uh, you you would get emails from some Nigerian prince saying they have to repatriate money and blah, 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 and they want to give it to you and you can take 10%, right? And people fell for these schemes left and right because... There was, they didn't have any precedent in their lives for someone lying to them about something like this. Nowadays, you know, it's become kind of a cliche. The, the understanding of this has made it into the public eyes and, and minds, and it, it's no longer the kind of threat that it was. Um, so, of course, they come up with different kinds of scams and so on. But the principles by which fake news works— and the the principles of these uh, of of these bots that convince people that there's actually a groundswell of a movement that is just fictitious, um, it it all relies on this new understanding of electronic media and how we react to digitally mediated messages that come so quickly at a different speed that it, it it's a different process that's described in this book. Um, and really, you know, I, I, I'm a little biased. I, I, I would recommend this book as, you know, as necessary for an understanding of, of all these crazy new phenomena and why it is that so many people are falling for, for fake news. I, I remember an analogy that your father used, and it was in talking about the speed at which things are happening mm-hmm. and in this new electronic environment. And he talks about in a certain speed when it was print media, you would, if your car would go into a skid, we were all taught to turn into the skid, that that's the right way. But when it comes at a certain speed, when the speed gets topped out at a certain point, you need to do something else. Turning into the skid is not going to do it. And I think that that's where we are right now. We're learning that, oh, we've got to pivot or move in a different way to to sort this all out. I think we're all in right in the middle of sorting it out still. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, you, you, you've nailed it. There, there is, uh, I've heard that example too. Well, it uses it in the book. Um, that you have to steer, in fact, in the other direction uh, once you've there's a, a phase change, and above a certain velocity, the dynamics on the road are different, and you have to learn how to I think how it, to steer I, that way. I think and, of it like a uh, Star Trek warp speed. We've just gone into warp speed, and yeah, that's where we are. Right, and and the physics are different. Right, uh, and until you have cars that can travel faster than that that speed at which it changes, you don't know that there would be any reason to to steer differently. What distinguishes real news from fake news is that real news is out to provide resources. It's out to provide information. It's, it's giving the tools for the consumer of the news to come to decisions on their own, right? I'm not talking about editorials, which are marked as editorials and so on. But, you know, journalistic standards are all about presenting the raw ingredients for the listener, the reader to make up their own mind. Fake news is not that at all. Fake news is out to achieve a goal. Um, and as such, uh, real news is, is actually has more to do with the old uh, book print-oriented method of communication. It's like, here's the information. You do with it as you want. Consume this information. The fake news is all about 
a listening response and the good good meaning talented purveyors of fake news uh, understand how to create reactions, instantaneous reactions that drive the reader to perform actions, whether it is, you know, crafting a headline that will really get clicks and views uh, so that some of them, it's just that it's just about getting clicks, right? Because they're making advertising revenue for it. Some of them, there is an ulterior goal, which is to, um, to get someone to vote a certain way in the ballot box or against a certain measure. Um, and the mechanisms inside you that they're harnessing right. to get this goal uh, are completely different from the mechanisms that you learn to make rational decisions. You're just going to be totally at the mercy of, of people creating feelings in you that are powerful and that guide your actions, uh, right? And this, you know, the, the response of court is a step-by-step walk through this world of fast media where things work differently and where, you know, things are coming at you so quickly that you have to make a concerted effort to step back and say, now, wait a second, you know, I just saw this headline that just gets my heart racing and my blood boiling and I want to consume it and and find out more information about it and then act on it and spread it and tell my friends because I'm infuriated. You know, that should be a warning sign, a flashing right? red light. Exactly. Telling you, slow down. Who are these people who put up this thing, uh, you know, that I'm seeing online? And what is it that they want from me? Right. Exactly. Good, good advice. I'm here with Anton Schwartz. He's the son of Tony Schwartz. Tony Schwartz is a media, was a media genius, a philosopher of the new communication environment. And uh, the author of several books, including The Response of Cord, How Media Manipulates You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think. If you want to know more about the work of Anton Schwartz, who who is also a jazz musician, I I might might say and uh, add, and he you can go to his website, AntonJazz.com, or you can go there. Uh, get to his father's work and know more about him, TonySchwartz.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Anton Schwartz, and he is the son of the famous Tony Schwartz, who was a media genius and the author of The Responsive Chord, 
how media manipulates you, what you buy, who you vote for, and how you think. And this book has recently been republished. A, a new edition is out now. Um, Anton, let's talk a little bit. I know your father had some things to say about education and about the the way young people are being taught in an old model, but they're arriving in school with a very different frame of reference. Can you say something about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. The um, The classic model for education is one of information transfer, right? The teacher knows something, uh, one hopes. The textbook you know, can, uh, enumerates uh, information and lays it out. And then you're responsible for learning that information and for reciting it back, which is, of course, it, you know, it has its uses. And, uh, but it, it's not really coupled either to how uh, this information is used in practice when you're grown up, nor to how we arrive at at knowledge and information and understanding uh, in the rest of the world. And more and more, you know, the, the, with the arrival of the electronic media, which for him meant radio and television, but for now also, for, for us now also include the internet, digital information, social media, uh, you know, mobile communication. The, the way that people are used to, and kids who grow up into it, are used to uh, reacting with media and with each other is very, very, very different from the classic model. Right. We're used to getting messages and responding instantly. And there, there's a different quality of engagement to that than there is to sitting down with a book. Well, will you just take information. I mean, why memorize information? You just Google it. And you just got it at your fingertip immediately, boom. So it's not the information that's available to us at a fingertip. It's how to think critically about it, how to put it together in different ways. I mean, it seems to me that 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 might be a way that education could go. I, I Absolutely. So to a certain extent, the content of the education is going to be different, right? Uh, let's face it, uh, long division is... Uh, an interesting thing to understand, but mostly when it's taught, it's not taught for the understanding value. It's taught so that you can divide large numbers. And no one does that anymore when they can, they have the cell phone or the computer in front of them that they can do. Whereas uh, we're in a world where, where a lot of our knowledge at a global level is mediated through statistics that we're told. And so many people have such a poor understanding of statistics, right? They, you know, so that would be an incredibly valuable thing to prioritize how, instead. How to know in what direction they're skewed? Like yeah. statistics, uh, what were the questions asked for? You know, to, to how do how do we really understand statistics and the basis by which they arrived at any one statistic? Right. And even so, even if it, it if the statistic is completely accurate, it can lead us, if we don't know better, to make wrong inferences. So for instance, you know, someone has these seven symptoms that are exactly the seven symptoms of this rare, 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 rare disease. And 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 there's a huge correlation there. But 
it's more likely that this person just has the common cold, which only displays three of those symptoms, but is so much more prevalent, right? So, you know, people make erroneous statistical in, in, uh, judgments that way that, um, you know, whereas if they learned a little bit more of the math, okay, I'm a little biased in that. Right, <laughs> right, right, I have a background right, in mathematics. Right, but, right. And, and so that's a matter of content, you know, the, the right. things, the tools that are useful to know about in the digital age. There's the other issue of just how the education takes place. You know, he talks a lot about the use of quote-unquote multimedia uh, in the book, which at the time meant things like, you know, watching video and film strips and, right. you know, interactive uh sensory modalities of communication that didn't involve just books. He sort of pokes a little fun at the ter term, you know, multimedia, because he thinks that it, it, it's so badly used in, in yes. his day that, you know, if you have to say that something is a multimedia education experience, it, it's not doing its job, because if, otherwise you would just call it a, an educational experience. Like, you don't say, oh, I built a new, a new, a wonderful new house with such and such equipment. No, if the equipment does its job, you just you built the, the house. house. That's the right, news. Right. So he he talks about how advanced technologies can be used in education that mirror the ways in which they're used in the lives of the children already. So that number one, the children can relate to it, the experience much better, and number two, it is so that it actually gets at the the strengths of the new media. And it, it, to, to me, it seems, now this is my bias, and I come from an education background as being a former teacher, that um, the way that young people now are coming into the, the work market, they, they're not going to just do one job all of their lives. It's not like that anymore. It's, so it seems to me that to offer a platform of how to better tap into our creativity to to learn better how to learn how how to approach anything in a in a way that's beneficial and that will support us in that pathway of absolutely we need to be lifelong learners um you know careers are very different now than they used to be you know the gone are the days of you know i'm now with IBM, and I'll be with IBM for 50 years and get my watch at the end of that and my retirement, right? We're all in the process of reconstructing ourselves, partly because of the advances of new technology that make, you know, the, the work environment change so rapidly and the business environment. Um, so it's really important that we learn these education skills. I would say in addition to that, you know, there's, there's extra necessity for understanding the communications principles in this book because... Uh, the, this book is is geared partly toward general consumption, but also has been uh, a, a Bible of sorts to the advertising world, both political advertising and product advertising, um, because it it talks about how to achieve results from uh, from messages, uh, and you know more and more this is something that everyone is involved in, right? It used to be that we had people in marketing, we had people in advertising, they were siloed off and, you know, it, it was a particular career. Nowadays, everyone is in marketing, right? You know, we, we're all on LinkedIn and advertising ourselves for our next job, even when we're at our current job. And even if it's not about job, you know, kids are basically 
building their brand on on you know Instagram or Snapchat right or Twitter or, or Facebook. Um, you know, it's it's all about portraying a certain picture We're of yourself. We're selling ourselves all the time. We are. And so, you know, if that's something that you're interested in, and, you know, as a musician, I'm constantly, I have to be concerned about my presence on social media, you know, and, and getting the word out about the, the CDs that I'm making and the, the touring that I'm doing. And it's, it's essential. And even not for that, you know, you want to give a certain image of yourself. You know, I, I'm just reminded uh, my uh, partner, Michael Toms, who, as our listeners know, has passed on, he often would say, he, we wrote a book together called True Work, Doing What You Love and Loving yeah. What You Do. And, and in, in that whole book and putting that together, he was very clear about if, if you are an artist— uh, like you are, Anton, you're a jazz musician, you're an artist. You can't live just in that artistry. You've got to own the whole thing. You've got to understand how you're projecting your image, as you just said, out in the world. And to, you can have somebody help you with that, but you can't just divorce yourself completely from it and say, oh, I don't want to do the selling part. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I mean, you know, there are people who manage to do that. Uh, you have to be extremely cons uh, successful and generally not as a jazz musician. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it helps if you're in a market that has a more, you know, a broad, uh, better room. Uh, better remuneration, <laughs> right. um, but uh, it, 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 yeah, there are different senses in which that's true. You know, I, I, I think of myself as primarily, first and foremost, a human being, and secondarily, an artist. You know, a, a musician. The the things that I express through my music, you know, are I think general, um, you know, and applicable to all, and I. I think it's just a shame not to have those things infuse the rest of my life as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the visuals of the CDs that I make. I'm interested in the whole experience when someone comes to a concert of mine. Now, it may be that my job is to, to present music primarily uh, and make that the center of it, but it's a broader experience than that, and I think it's missing out on a lot not to let those areas of your work infuse your, your whole life. Well said. Uh, Anton, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. This has been such a pleasure, Justine. It's thank been you. mine as well. Uh, and uh, if you want to know more about just exactly what Anton was talking about, uh, because we're all part of it, uh, you can pick up the book, The Responsive Chord, that was written by his father, Tony Schwartz, The Responsive Chord, How Media Manipulate You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, and How You Think. And to know more about his work, you can go to TonySchwartz.org. To know more about Anton's work, go to AntonJazz.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number... 3614. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. 
You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.